and Apex Lab Podcast. Hey there, welcome to the Level Up Engineering Podcast, where we speak to the most experienced technology leaders from around the world. So stay with us to learn actionable management insights to take your engineering team to the next level. This show is powered by Apex Lab, a team of experts in end-to-end digital product development. ApexLab.io Today I have a very special guest, someone who a lot of you will recognize. I'm happy to welcome Robert C. Martin, a.k.a. Uncle Bob. (laughs) How are you? (laughs) I'm great. Thank you very much. In these Um, very complicated times, that's good to hear. uh, Yes, it is. They are. Uh, But we are happy that you could finally join us. Although a lot of our listeners may know a lot about you, please tell a bit about what you think is important to know about you. Oh, heavens, about me, huh? Well, I've been a programmer for 50-some years, um, starting in, uh, gee, probably 1969 or 1968 when I was a teenager. I got started in in computers back when computers filled whole rooms and and people had to program them using punch cards and have stayed with the industry ever since. I've worked on telecommunications projects and I've worked on computational geometry and graphical user interfaces once they started. I've written code on uh, Macintoshes and PCs and PDP-8s and IBM 360s and I don't know, I've a whole bunch of stuff. I've uh, been around in the industry for a good long time. I became a consultant in about 1992 or th- one, something like that, and and have been self-employed ever since. I've run a couple of of software companies over the years. I've written tons of books and articles. And I just love every minute of it all. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so perhaps not surprisingly, today our topic is clean code with you. And we want to take a managerial perspective. But um, let's begin with some basics so we can make sure that we're all on the same page. How do you define clean code? Well, if I had to put a single, a single sentence on it, then uh, the sentence that was given to be my Michael Feathers is probably the best one, uh, which is clean code always looks like it was written by someone who cares. There's a whole bunch of technical things that we could talk about. There's a whole bunch of you know low-level details that we could talk about, but that's really the underlying goal of clean code. It's to encourage programmers to care about what they do, to have pride in their workmanship. There's an underlying theme behind all of that, which is that if you want to go fast, if you want to meet schedules, if you want to keep your customers and your managers happy, the best way possible to do that is to keep your code as clean as possible because nothing will make you go faster than keeping your workspace clean. Awesome. Can we just go a little bit around that? What are some of the characteristics of making code clean? Or or how should we measure this? So one of the ways to measure it is to measure the size of methods, size of functions. 
a very large part of the clean code book is focused around that idea. And the, and the idea is very simple. We want to take our functions and make them as small as possible. Maybe two lines, maybe three lines, maybe four lines long. Once you get up above five or six, they're starting to get too large. That is something that many programmers find disturbing. They're not used to the idea of lots of little tiny functions. And they worry that if you were to do that, then they might drown in a sea of little tiny functions. That is not what happens. Because when you make your functions very, very small, you will have more of them, it's true, but they have to be named. And the, the, uh, the task of naming them is very eye-opening. Suddenly you have to come up with names for these tiny little concepts. And those names tend to be fairly long names because the concepts are so precise, they require several words to describe. And so the functions take on names that are almost full sentences or, or very large parts of a sentence. They're a phrase or a clause of a sentence. And then when you mix that with if statements and while statements and else statements, you start to form full sentences. And your code begins to read as though it was a natural language, almost like English or whatever your natural language is. You see if and then a function call, which is almost a sentence. And following that, another function call. And then else. And then a function call, which is almost a sentence. And it makes the code read very, very nicely. So... Bottom line there is that if, if I had to boil down the technical aspects of clean code into a single thing, it would be keep your functions as small as possible and name them very well. That's clear enough. Thank you very much. And before we move on, what are some of the consequences um, of not writing clean code, just so we are clear? Well, the consequences of not writing clean code is slow down. That's the primary consequence. Everything goes slower if the code is dirty. And everybody knows this. Everyone in your audience has been slowed down by bad code and probably slowed down a lot by bad code. And, and then you must ask, well, why, why was the bad code written? And the answer almost always is in order to go fast. And that is the fundamental contradiction that drives most programmers. They do the thing that slows them down in order to go fast. And they'll, they'll make an excuse about it. They'll say, well, it'll, it'll slow me down in the long term, but it speeds me up in the short term. And that is incorrect. It does not speed you up in the short term, which is something that every programmer has experienced. Almost all of us have written bad code in the morning, gone to lunch, come back from lunch, look at our screen and wonder what idiot was hammering on the keyboard in the morning. <laughs> it slows us down immediately. All right. So all of us should know these things, right? Yes. Um, and most of our <laughs> listeners are engineering managers or tech leaders. What could you tell them? How should they onboard their new developers to adhere to these clean code standards? What should they tell them? From a management point of view, the managers should expect high quality. They should just say that, you know, we expect 
you programmers to do the best jobs you can. And we know that if you do the best job you can, you will go as fast as possible. The programmers should say back to the managers, we understand and we will do the best jobs we can because we know that the only way to meet our deadlines is to do the best job we can. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> so what is it that really makes developers believe that if they do a perhaps sloppier job, they will go faster? Oh, it feels fast. Being sloppy feels fast. Everybody knows this. If you do a, a really bad job of washing the dishes, it feels fast. Now, it'll take you a lot longer to wash the dishes, but it'll feel really fast because you're not planning, you're not thinking, you're not using your God-given talents to organize things well. You're not putting the mental effort in. You're not putting the physical effort in. You're just kind of cleaning the dishes and, and whatever. And maybe you're washing TV while you're cleaning the dishes. And if you were to measure the time, it would take you longer, but it feels faster. It feels fast to not be disciplined. It is faster to be disciplined, but that feels slower. This is the same problem people have when they want to lose weight. <laughs> it's always a great idea to lose weight, right? but it's always this goal that feels harder than it actually is. Discipline and organization, you will lose weight. If you control the amount of food and the contents of the food you eat with a little bit of discipline and willpower, by God, you're going to lose weight. If you can't, you won't. All right. So, so <laughs> what, what can managers do to help their developers teams lose weight um, <laughs> in this sense? What should they do to get their team to write clean code? Focus on quality. Focus on quality all the time. Measure the things that are indicators of quality. For example, uh, bug discovery rates. If bug discovery rates are high, something's going wrong on the development side. If you have a QA department and that QA department is finding defects, that's an indication that something is going wrong on the development side. Take a look at the source code control system. How many modules are being thrashed? If you're a technical enough manager, you will understand this. How many of those modules are getting attacked by more than one person or more than one person in a week? That's an indication that something is going wrong. So there are a whole bunch of metrics that you can use. They're indirect, but they're all right. The best metric, however, is to look at the morale and the attitude of the programmers. You know, are you as a manager encouraging them every day to do the best job they possibly can? Are you putting a value on high quality and pride of workmanship? You know, are you recruiting and organizing a team that loves to come to work, that does the best job they can, that feels terrific when they go home? Or are you organizing a team that when they go home has to take a shower? <laughs> so let's say that we hope to hire people who are into discipline and disciplining themselves. Yes. But sometimes there are some team members who perhaps aren't as into writing clean code. How do you prove the value of writing clean code to an individual contributor? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, if I'm a manager, <laughs> I just make it a condition of their employment. Right? You want to stay employed? You're going to write clean code. Now, let, let's put this in a different terms. Let's say that you are the captain of a ship and it's wartime. And you know that the survival of the crew depends on every member of the crew being as disciplined and well-practiced as possible. The ship will not survive if even one of those team members lets down the ship. That's the message. The message to all the programmers is, look, we're in this all together. One person can wreck it. One person can drop their disciplines and wreck it for everyone else, and we cannot tolerate that. So you will all be disciplined. We will all pull together. Think about what's going on in the current situation in the world, right? We're all supposed to be sheltering in place. I don't know what it's like in your part of the world. In my part of the world, nobody's going out. Nobody's going to restaurants or bars. We're all sheltering in place, and one person can wreck it. And so we're all being told, like, okay, everybody, it's a team effort. Everybody's got to be on board. That's how you send the message to people. Does that work? For most people, yeah. Most people, it works pretty well. For some, it doesn't. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, the, the great thing about owning a business is that if you got somebody on board that doesn't work, you can have them go somewhere else. <laughs> nice one. In some countries. <laughs> yes. So, um, excuse me if I should know this, but uh, how did you get into the entirety of clean code? Was this an, a natural process for you from the first days of your of your software engineering career, or or what was it that made you appreciate this discipline this much? I've made every mistake that it is possible to make. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have learned this the hard way, the very hard way in some cases. And it took decades. And here I am, I'm 66, am I 66 or 67? I might be 67 now. Uh, depends, I have to count. I am many decades old at this point. I have been a programmer for over five decades. It took me a very long time to understand that it mattered and what the principles were and how to organize those principles and how to articulate those principles. I, I knew twenty uh, years ago that I wanted to write a book about it, but I didn't have the courage because I didn't believe that I knew. And it was only, well, 10 or 11 years ago, I can't remember when the book finally came out, but I finally just looked myself in the mirror and said, you got to write this book. You're not maybe the best person to write it. You're not maybe the guy who could write it better than someone else, but it's got to be written. And so I wrote the book. All right. So can it be a message to some of our listeners that they shouldn't beat themselves up if they haven't gotten every oh, bit of yeah. it yet? Yeah. They can get that message very well in the in the book I wrote right after Clean Code, which is the title of that book is The Clean Coder. When I wrote the Clean Code book, I focused on all the technical stuff and I ignored all the other stuff, all the personal stuff. But all that personal stuff was building up inside of me. I knew I had to talk about it. 
So I wrote another book called The Clean Coder. And that's the book about all of my failures, all of my experiences of being a programmer for as long as I've been and how to deal with that. So, for example, I was fired from one job. I talk about how that happened to me, <laughs> how, how uh, you know, I was working as a programmer and just not doing a good job and, and eventually got fired by my manager who didn't want to fire me, but he didn't have any other choice. And I look back on those days now, I realize, yeah, he had no other choice. I talk in that book about how do you get code written when you've just had a big fight with your wife or your husband or your significant other and your brain simply will not function. And you sit there at your keyboard staring at the screen and the characters on your screen don't make any sense to you because your mind will not focus on them. How do you make progress? What do you do to break out of that? I talk about all kinds of things that have to do with the personal aspects of being a programmer in our crazy industry. Since we kind of have touched on this now, do you have any tips for collaboration or communication between managers and developers that may help to produce cleaner code? Yeah, absolutely. So managers, trust your programmers. Make sure they understand you trust them, right? When programmers give you an estimate, when programmers give you a promise or a lack of a promise, you must understand that and make whatever you know management decisions you have to because of that. If you trust your programmers, you'll have a much better time and so will they. Programmers understand that managers have real problems and real issues and you have to be on their side to solve those problems. Now that does not mean that you must give in to arbitrary dates or arbitrary schedules. It does not mean that you must promise the impossible. It does mean that you have to communicate to managers that you understand the issues and that you are trying the best you can to solve those issues. One of the most important things a programmer can say to a manager is the word no. When the answer is no, and you know that the answer is no, you must be able to look the manager in the eye with all the empathy and all the sympathy you can muster and tell the manager that the answer is no. You will save that manager and the company a ton of money if you say no at the right time. Never promise to do something you know you can't do because they will believe you and they will bet a lot on your ability to do it and then you will let them down actually i have a question that we might want to open up a little bit so this was requested by our listeners and it reads how do you convince leaders as an engineering manager that refactor time and more effort put into writing clean code is worth sacrificing for? I, I don't know what they're sacrificing, but the answer is very simple. You don't convince anyone of that. If you're a, a, a technical leader and you have programmers working for you and they are all writing tests and writing good code and they're refactoring, you don't tell your bosses anything about that. It's not their business. 
asking your manager if it's okay to refactor code is like asking your manager if it's okay to wash your hands after using the bathroom. <laughs> it's none of their business. You are the ones who know how to do this. They are not. So you don't have to ask for permission. You should not tell them at all. Never ever go to a manager and offer the choice of saying, well, if we do it right, it'll take this much time. But if we do it wrong, it'll take less time. Never offer that choice. First of all, it's the wrong choice. You won't get it done sooner. Second of all, it's none of their business. You know how to get this done the fastest way. Get it done the fastest way, which means the best way. All right. I must say, though, it sounds ah! really great when, when you say it like that. But I can speak from experience. I've seen a lot of people being really into... the solid principles and writing clean code and test-driven development. But perhaps the entirety of the team is not homogenous in a sense of striving for this greatness when it comes to code quality. <laughs> and sometimes you do end up with some code that needs refactoring. However, yeah. it may be functional. Yes. Sure. And so what would do you suggest our listeners tell the client, if it may be, that it's worth for the client to have their app refactored? I wouldn't tell them anything. If we're in the midst of active development and the code that needs to be refactored is relatively small, I would just refactor it. Now, if we're talking about A different situation if we're talking about a really big mess and a really big mess does not happen because just a few people didn't refactor a really big mess happens because everybody dropped the ball and made a big mess and now the customer is coming to us and saying you guys it takes you too long to do anything how are we going to go faster And that's the time when you look the customer in the eye and you say, we made a really big mess and we screwed up and it's going to take us some time to fix this mess. And here's how we're going to do it. We are not going to start a project to clean up this code. That project will fail. We have no way to estimate it. We don't know how long it's going to take. So what we're going to do instead is that From now on, every time we touch this code, we're going to spend a small amount of time cleaning it. Not a lot, a small amount. The code will get gradually better. We will adopt a new rule. And the new rule is we will check every module in just a little cleaner than when we checked it out. Mr. Customer, Mr. Manager, you may not notice the amount of time we spend on this. You may notice it, it won't be a lot, but over the next year or two, this code is going to get better and better. And you will begin to notice that our estimates will shrink and that we will be going faster. This won't happen immediately. It took a long time to make the mess. It's going to take a long time to clean it up, but we can clean it up. All right. 
That sounds like a really straightforward uh, kind of client delivery relationship. Um, I've done that. It works. It's not easy. You tell the customer you screwed up. They don't like to hear that. And that's <laughs> right. the only way to put it, right? It's the only way to put it. Look, we screwed up because they don't expect a mess being made in the code. These people think you're doing a great job. <laughs> and all of a sudden you turn around and say, you know what? We made a real mess in the code. What? They don't know that. So it's a big surprise to them. And, you know, I've, I've been in that position. And fortunately, I've, I've had uh, customers and managers who looked me in the eye and understood. All right. I have a question here. Um, and it reads, how do you maintain code quality when there is pressure on delivery? But after I have talked to you for about half an hour now, I think the real question is, how do you show people that discipline will pay off on the long run? Well, spend a few years being undisciplined and then realize there's got to be something better than that. <laughs> and, and then try being disciplined for a year. You'll, you'll find it works out much better. How do you convince people? In my experience, you don't convince people at all. People don't like to be convinced. What you can do is demonstrate. And some people will see the demonstration and understand it. And something in their brains will change and they will decide, yes, I need to do this. Other people will not. And you will wind up with a team of people, some of whom want to be cleaner and some who just don't want to be cleaner, don't understand it, don't care. And in that situation, there will be a divorce because the two sides cannot coexist. And either that divorce will be the one side leaving the other or the one side in small bits leaving the other, like one or two people will quit and go somewhere else. Sometimes a good, good manager takes a good manager to do this, but a good manager can see this happening. They can see the division in the team and they can divide the team and send one half of the team off someplace where they are not going to do too much harm and keep the other part of the team focused on the project. All right, that's a nice suggestion there for the managers listening here. How do you maintain the code quality when your developer team is growing super fast? Huh. <sighs> You're asking all the right questions. <laughs> We're glad to hear. We have a, a real big problem in our industry which is growth. It's a problem because there are so few people with experience to teach the young people coming in. It is sometimes said that the, the number of people in our industry doubles every five years. And that's a, a very frightening statistic because it means that half the programmers in the world have less than five years experience. If you're a manager, one of the things you've got to worry about is getting the experience of the older people into the brains of the younger people. And the best way to do that is to start having the older people pair program with the younger people. By pair programming, I mean the older guy and the younger guy are sitting together at the same terminal 
the same keyboard. They are writing code together. If you have five experienced people and 20 inexperienced people, take those five and have them work with the other 20 an hour a day each. Get those junior people sitting with an older guy for an hour a day. The older guys can take on their own tasks. That's fine. But they should also help the younger guys with their tasks and get those younger people in contact with the older people at the keyboard, making real decisions, looking at code, understanding why those decisions are being made on a daily basis for at least an hour a day, maybe two if you can afford it. All right. So first of all, we know that if someone is passionate about programming, they are going to watch a lot of classes. Perhaps they will even read a few books. But do you think that it's essential for someone to also learn in, for example, an extreme programming environment from someone who is a lot more senior to them? Is it essential? No, you, you can learn by making the mistakes. It's very costly. The great thing about having a, a senior sitting next to you is you don't have to make all the mistakes. I just recently learned how to fly an airplane. Congrats. And thank you. Sitting next to me, teaching me, was a person who had many, many more hours of experience than I had. And I did not have to make the mistakes, which, by the way, in an airplane, you don't want to make. <laughs> that person made sure that I did not make those mistakes, that I learned safely and I learned quickly. It is not that different writing code. The mistakes a young programmer can make can cost the company immense amounts of money. And having a senior sit next to them for a small amount of time every day can stop an immense amount of cost and very rapidly get those junior programmers aware of the deficit in their experience and hungry for more knowledge. We should all hope that this is going to be the case. Um, is there anything else that we haven't covered and you think is important to mention here? One of the things that our industry lacks right now is the focus for professionalism. We are not professionals and we are not professionals because there is nothing that we profess. A professional professes. And the word profess means to teach or to preach or to, to say. There's nothing that we have. We have no ethics. There's no standard of ethics in our, in our industry. There's no set of disciplines that we all adhere to. A doctor is a professional because a doctor has a set of disciplines that they profess. They have an oath, a set of ethics that they profess. And they will tell you what that oath is. They will tell you what the disciplines are. They will teach you those things. We don't have that. Although perhaps just now we are beginning to accumulate those disciplines and those ethics. This is what our industry dramatically needs and needs soon because Our industry has been put in a position that very few have ever been put in before. 
our society depends on software for its existence. A current society could not exist without software. This was not true 30 years ago, but it is true today. And all you need to do to prove that to yourself is look around the room you're in and count the number of processors on the walls, on the floor, in your pocket, on your desk. Count the amount of processors right now running code written by 22-year-olds at 3 in the morning. Count all that. And then count the activities of daily life that involve software. You cannot drive a car. You cannot microwave popcorn. You can't make a phone call. You can't watch TV. You can't wash the dishes. You can't wash the clothes. You can't buy anything. You can't sell anything. You can't get an, an insurance claim filed. You can't buy an insurance policy. You can barely sleep. You can't tell what time it is because you've got a computer in your watch. There is nothing in daily life that we do that is not somehow controlled by software. We programmers are sitting in the middle of everything that happens in our society and we are screwing it up really big. We're in the position now where we can kill people and have. And we're going to have to deal with that pretty soon. So how do you propose that the industry goes on about having a set of ethics? Well, we're talking about it now. You and I are talking about it. Many other people are talking about it. What is that ethics? What is the ethics that we need to say? What should programmers do? The programmers who cheated the Volkswagen in California, who wrote the code that determined they were on a testing rig and changed the parameters of the engine to avoid the pollution standards, what should happen to those programmers? Now, I'll tell you what happened to them. They went to jail. <laughs> and that's, that's not a bad outcome. They should have gone to jail. They wrote code that cheated. And, you know, you can say that well, it, it was the bosses that made them do it. No, no boss can make you do anything. A boss can tell you to do something. You always have the ability to say no. And those programmers should have said no. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to write code that cheats. I'm not going to write code that lies. I'm not going to write code that puts people at risk. I'm not going to do that. That's part of the discussion we need to have. At some point, and I don't know when and I don't know how, at some point we need to organize, sort of like the doctors did in, say, the 1800s. And the doctors looked around and they saw so many people claiming to be doctors that did not have the knowledge, did not have the discipline, did not have the experience. And they organized around that and they created a licensing organization for being doctors. And I don't know how that's going to happen in software. Something like that is going to have to happen and probably within the next two decades. All right. So we still have some time before the world ends. I hope we do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So even though I would love to converse with you about this, what are some of the things you are working on right now? Oh, right now? I'm in the middle of writing a book, another book. And the name of that book is Clean Craftsmanship. And it will be a discussion of these disciplines, not so much about the ethics, but about the disciplines of writing good code. It won't be about 
clean code itself. It'll be about the activities, the technical activities that cause us to write clean code or helps us to write clean code. And I'll be talking about things like test-driven development and refactoring and, and continuous integration and so on. That'll be the next book. The book after that will be the book about ethics. And that'll awesome. be something about the, you know, the programmer's oath or clean programming oath or something like that. That'll be another year or two in the future. Of course, I'm always working on videos. We've got, I don't know how many now, 60 some odd videos on cleancoders.com that I've been working on for the last 10 years now to cover the vast swath of my experience and knowledge. I'm always working on articles and papers and talks and things like that. So I have plenty to keep me busy as I shelter in place in my home. <laughs> awesome. Um, as you said, you're sheltering in place at home. Where should our listeners go to find your work or to follow your work or to be updated on your upcoming books? That information is on cleancoder.com. The word clean, the word coder, all lowercase, no space, cleancoder.com. The videos are on cleancoders.com. It's just an S at the end of clean coder, cleancoders.com. And that should be plenty. Awesome. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Wonderful discussion. Thank you. Today... Our guest was Robert C. Martin. Most of us will know him as Uncle Bob. We talked a lot about clean code and how to maintain it in teams. I am Carolina Tot, and I hope to see you next time. Thanks for staying with us. This was the Level Up Engineering Podcast by Apex Lab. Check them out at apexlab.io. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel, rate our content, and share your thoughts on this episode. See you next time.